Well, good morning. How are you today? Well, I, um, I, I think Scott maybe said, I live down in Phoenix, so it's a little cooler up here, right? You're like, yes, it's part of why we love living here, right? Well, it's, it's good to be together. It's good to be with you. As Scott said, I've known Scott for quite a while. We've shared some ministry together. And uh, so it's a joy to be um, in this space with you, to be with God's people. And, and clearly, I haven't been with you uh, all summer, but I know you've been walking through John's first epistle, first John. You've been, you've been talking about love, right? Right? Yeah? Especially these last few weeks, right? As you're getting through chapter 4, chapter 3 says, Look, see, behold, what kind of love. This God has for us. So you've been talking a lot about love, love, love. And of course, uh, the Apostle John was called the beloved disciple because of the closeness that he experienced with Jesus. And, and I have a feeling, and, and there's little things you can pick up in the Gospels, especially some things that John writes in his Gospel um, where John would probably have argued and said that he was Jesus's favorite disciple, right? He probably would have. And, and we know that he was an arguer um, because he and his brother James would argue about who got to sit next to Jesus. Remember that from the Gospels? Uh, Jesus called he and his brother the sons of thunder. So even though he talks about love, 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 until you think love is coming out your ears, he was not some quiet, soft kind of guy. In fact, you might say he was kind of rough. He was a son of thunder. He was arguing about who got to sit next to Jesus. He probably would have said, I was his favorite. Now, now the truth is, I'm sure like, um, hopefully, our, our children, if you have children, you know, hopefully they all think that they're your favorite, you know? I know with our kids, they both think that they're the favorite. My oldest, our son, he like knows he's the favorite. And our daughter sometimes is like asking, am I really the favorite? You know, sometimes there can be some insecurity in all of that. Um, but First uh, John, John, this closeness, this belovedness. And this morning we're going we're gonna to talk about an invitation to live as the beloved. And, and I love that, uh, you've titled this whole sermon series invitations because God is continually inviting us. That's who God is. He's continually inviting us. He isn't in our face. Some of us may have grown up in a, in a church context or even been discipled in such a way that we think that God's just kind of there looking at us and he's watching and he's, God is not in our face, but as Revelation 3 describes, it's a beautiful picture. He stands at the door of our hearts and he knocks. He's not intrusive. He's not demanding. He invites. So this morning, an invitation to live as the beloved. So I want us to just, right now, just pause for a moment. And 
I want to just invite you to go into the quietness of your own heart, you and the Lord, just pause and ask the Lord to speak to you this morning. Open yourself. In a sense, open that door and say, Jesus, I want to hear from you. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to dive uh, even a little deeper with this focus on love because that's where uh, the Apostle John is taking us in chapter 5. And as we begin to think back to uh, 1 John chapter 3 and that encouragement to behold or see or contemplate the love of God, I want you to watch this this video, and it's a unique video that that really gives us, uh, I believe, a, a beautiful picture of this great love that the Father has for us. Did you understand it though? Yeah. No. Okay. All right. <laughs> oh no, not not this one. This is this is the grand finale of it. Okay, the last. Yeah, that's the last one. That's what I was wondering. I don't know what they're going to do next season because they did some stuff this time. Exactly what I was thinking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, don't bring that again. You know what I'm saying? Don't do the same stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I was thinking that, yeah. Yeah. Like, go somewhere else with that, but don't break it here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's what I said. And then he was like, ah, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, what in the world? But don't do that here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really? I thought the same thing. <laughs> we think a lot alike, huh? That is a picture of a father who loves his son. It's, it's probably, I, I think, one of the best illustrations, really, of the deep love the father has for us. They're, they're, they're communicating, right? Um, love is happening between them. The father is present to his child, and yet, not everything is understood, right? <laughs> um, and did you notice how the child kept looking at the father? Just wanted to get his gaze. Wanted to make sure that he was still paying attention. That he had his attention. It's a picture of deep connection and attachment. And I think this is a picture of, of us with our heavenly father. You know, God is present. And we may not always understand what God is saying, because I, I don't think the, the son here understood everything the father was saying, right? <laughs> and we don't always understand everything that God is saying. How could we? 
An infinite God, all-knowing, all the alls, everything. We spend a lifetime growing and learning the language of God, so to speak. Just as a child begins to learn a language. And yet that doesn't stop the father from engaging. From connecting. He keeps on lovingly communicating with us. And then as children, the other thing that I love about that, that, that video is that there are times in prayer where we are speaking things that could almost be nonsense like that young baby, you know? At the very best, they might display just a shallow understanding of the world and our lives and even who God is. We're not always going to get it right in our prayers. And yet, there's a picture of a father who's listening, who's there, who just delights in the two being together. The father in our lives He receives us right where we are, meets us right where we are. Now, to think back again about the the video there with the father and the son, what do you think his son will be like when he's older? If that's any indication of the relationship that is developing and is present in that young man's life, what do you think he will be like when he's older? I suggest to you, that that young man will live life as a loved person. He will live out of a place of connection and secure attachment. You know, several years ago, I was uh, pastoring at a church in, in Phoenix, and we had a man in our congregation who was in his 70s, and he had a ministry of being Santa Claus at Christmas. And when I first met John, he started coming to our church. I was really curious and I thought, this is kind of a little interesting for a ministry that you put on the Santa Claus suit. And he had the full white beard and white hair that he kept throughout the year, you know, and he would put on the Santa suit. And I got to know this man and I watched him and I watched him go into hospitals and minister to children. And he would tell the the story of St. Nicholas, who was an actual historical person. You're probably familiar with that. And he would share the gospel and he would just bring God's love. And he would take phone calls at 10 o'clock at night. And a parent would say, would you come visit my child in the hospital? And he would go do it. He and his wife had a nonprofit where they uh, they raised money to buy toys that they gave out to kids at Christmas. And, and the, the ministry that he did was truly remarkable. And I, I grew to love and respect him a lot. And, and several years ago, John uh, passed away very suddenly. And his son and his wife asked if I would officiate uh, the, the memorial service. And so as I sat down with them and talked to them about this man that I'd gotten to know, I asked them, as I'm standing up there on behalf of you sharing with people, what is it that would most describe John? What would you say? And I'll never forget what John's wife said. She said, he lived as a loved man. He lived his life as a loved man. And when she said that, 
everything sort of clicked in my mind. Ah, yes, of course. He was living from a deep place of experiencing God's love in his life. And it led to this thing where he was continually sharing love with others, the love of God. And he had a day job. Okay, he was he was an insurance agent that that took up a lot of time. And, and but this was his ministry. This was his life. You know, first John gives us a picture of what it looks like when we're living as loved people, as the beloved of God. Uh, the, the, the intention of John in this first letter that he wrote was to instill the vision. And this is the first thing you'll see in your notes to instill the vision that we are the beloved. As we experience God's love, we love God and others. And, and let's look at that in the, in the text in the first three verses of first John. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father and lo- love also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what God's love is to keep his commands and his commands are not a burden. Just a few things to unpack what's going on there in those, those first few verses. Let me start with that, that phrase, believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I know often in our, in our world and often in the discipleship that we've even received, we think about believe as being a, a mental thing. Like you have to have the right belief and believe the right thing about Jesus. And certainly there is an intellectual component to this. But the idea of belief in the gospel of John and into this first letter of John, belief is about trust. It's about trusting in something. Trusting specifically here that he is the Christ or the Messiah. Maybe you've heard it said before that Jesus Christ, Christ was not his last name. Right? You know this? Okay. It wasn't his last name. It was Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. The promised one. The, the, the fulfillment really of all that we truly desire. So what John is doing here is establishing. You have been born of God. You have been made a child of God. Because you have put your trust in him as your Messiah. He's saying you are connected. You are secure in the same way that a father is with a child. And as some of you are studying through 1 John all through this summer and each week. And and if you're just simply to go back through 1 John and look at all the places it talks about children. Children being a child. God the Father. The imagery is all over the place. You know, and as this passage develops, it's very connected to what Jesus said in the Gospels. Love the Lord your God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets, Jesus said, 
hang on those two commands, which are really one command. Because uh, Jesus said what he said in response to the question of what's the most important commandment, right? You remember this in the Gospels. What's the most important one? And, and I always think it's like Jesus ninja. Instead of just saying one, he gives them two, but it is really one, right? And he did that because they are intertwined with one another. They're connected you know, earlier in First John, you, you can't say you love, or you can't say you are loving God if you're not loving your brother or sister. They're connected. They're connected. You know, as we receive God's love and experience experience that secure connection, we will naturally then share that with others. And then as we seek to love others, we'll, we'll go back to standing in his love again because we'll always need to be further shaped by his love and presence. And this is really what it means to live a life of love, to, to receive the love of God, to be in this love relationship with him where we're receiving our belovedness in him. And I'll talk about that more in a second. And then we are loving him back. And then there's something that flows out of that. And so as we think about this, there, there really is a deep simplicity and beauty to what John is saying here. Uh, which is, again, really an exploration of what Jesus already said. And this is why John said his commands are not burdensome. They're not some extra burden that you put on yourself. But every command of Scripture is either about loving God or loving others. Think about that. Every command in Scripture. If you take the Ten Commandments, they can pretty much be divided into love for God and love of others. All of it. It really is that simple. It's, a, it's about love. And why does God give us all the commandments? To give us discernment. Right? Uh, it is not loving to lie to someone. And so God made that clear. <laughs> Do not lie, right? Because he wanted to give us some clarity on what it means to love someone. To just not be a liar, to just be a moral upstanding person is not the point. There are a lot of people in our world, in our community, that are much more moral than any of us sitting in here, probably. Okay? And I'm not, I'm not criticizing any of you and your moral upstandingness, okay, at all. Um, but it's not about keeping these rules. But those commands are all about giving us discernment of what it means to love. And so that's why he can say the commands are not a burden. It's not about keeping rules. They're about giving us an idea of what the shape of love is. What does it mean to, to love God? What does it mean to love others? And of course, love is, is definitely a word that can get us tripped up a bit. 
because we know it's the most important thing in the world, right? Our hearts tell us that. Our minds tell us that. The scriptures make that clear. I don't think you can read through 1 John and not think that love somehow is central to this whole thing, right? But the challenge is we often associate the feelings that are sometimes present in love with love itself. And we hear that. People talk about, I'm in a loveless marriage. Well, often what they mean is some of those feelings that are often associated with love aren't as present at this time. Those things can kind of come and go. Often love is filled with affection and desire and positive emotions, but sometimes it's not. And that's because love at its core, and I want you to hear this, love at its core is about being attached and connected. I have a good friend who wrote a book this last year. He's actually a part of our, our ministry team. He's in his early 80s, and he's written multiple books. Um, but, the, but the idea of what exactly is love has always kind of haunted him. And over the last, I think, three to four years, he's been researching. What, how, how do you really get your hands around this idea of love? We know it's important, we know it's central, but how do you describe it? And, and maybe the most simple thing I could say is he called his book on love, on God's love, he called it connected. Because as he studied and looked at the scriptures, he, he concluded that that's what love is about. It's about connection. And it makes sense. Jesus came to be with us, a demonstration of God's love, and so how God demonstrate his love, how would he live it out by his presence, by coming and being with us, presence, connection. So the scriptures, we read things like, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you till the end of the age. Over and over again, promises of God saying, I will be with you, or don't forget As you go forward, I am with you. Now, there's a beautiful simplicity to this, and it's not easy. It's simple, and it's not easy. It's not always easy to live with a sense of God's love in our lives. It's certainly not always easy to love others. Can I get an amen? <laughs> right? For example, you know, you, you may have an adult child living at home who gives you some attitude. Or, or a spouse that you're really struggling to honor and love well. Maybe a boss that doesn't treat you with a lot of respect. And that was just, that's just me yesterday. Um, but you probably have your own list, right? We all have our lists of where it's difficult to love. It's simple. It's also not easy. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Jesus says, love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's a simplicity to that. So then why is it so hard? And and I want to just suggest to you, if you're thinking, it's not that hard for me, um, 
then it is hard for you. You're just either in denial or you're blind, okay? It is hard to love, right? We all have people in our lives. Sometimes it's hard to even love ourselves. Well, in John 16, Jesus said, and this is his last dinner that he had with the disciples, right? Uh, He's talking about all these things. All will know that you're my disciples, my followers, those who love me, if you have love for one another. In that whole context, Jesus says, in the world, you will have trouble. In other words, it's not going to be easy. There's a simplicity to what Jesus said in the Gospels right here in 1 John. But it's not easy. He says, you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And it's as though Jesus is saying, it's hard, but you can do this. The question is, well, what is, what is the world? When he says in, in the Gospels, I have overcome the world, what is he talking about? Uh, when he talks about the world, when he talks about trouble. Well, the, the world system, the world is a system based on false narratives. That's to what Jesus is referring. And that's what we're going to see in these next two verses in 1 John chapter 5. So let's look first at verse 4. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world or overcomes the world. And so he's saying, if, if you are born of God, you're going to love God. You're going to be loving others who are born of God. Why? Because everyone who's been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. I think understanding what is meant by world here, and and it's really what Jesus was referring to as well in John uh, chapter 16. Understanding this is critical to living that life of love. And if we don't understand these these false narratives that can be there, we're going to struggle. We're going to have a difficult time loving so if, if you want to have an idea of what these false narratives are, if, if you have a Bible, it's not going to be on the screen. But in John, 1 John chapter 2, he describes this. He tells us already what the world is. In verse 16, he says, For all that is in the world, then he mentions three things, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions. That's not from the Father, but from the world. So what are those three temptations? They are these. You'll see it on the screen. The first one is the idea of we are what we do. That's the desires of the flesh. There can be a temptation for us to define ourselves by what we do, our power, our strength our ability to make things happen and get things done. And then secondly, the world system is based on the idea that we are what others think of us. That's the desires of the eyes that John writes about in chapter 2. 
feeling like we need to look good. And then finally, we are what we have. There can be that temptation to define ourselves by what we have, what we possess. And that's not just talking about material things, finances. It certainly refers to that, but it could be anything that you feel like you need to possess. You could go into the area of relationships where you feel like you have to possess someone else. Knowledge, for some of us, it's about that. We just have to have knowledge about everything. And that can give us a, a sense of feeling like we're in control. And, and what's, what's fascinating about these three things that make up what the world is, which is basically what trips us up from living into this life of love, is that these are the same temptations Jesus experienced in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. The first temptation was where the enemy came to Jesus and said, just turn these stones to bread. Do something. Make something happen. Defining yourself by what you do. And then the second is jump off the temple. Do something where you're going to look good. You're the Messiah. Prove it. Let's see it. Perform. And of course, that third temptation, if you bow down and worship me, you will have all the kingdoms of the world. See, Jesus overcame the world, says in 1 John. And I want to suggest to you, based upon what we know from chapter 2, that it's talking about what happened in the wilderness. It's certainly his whole life, but a part of it is what was happening in the wilderness. Because those three temptations that happened in the wilderness... For Jesus in those 40 days, the same three temptations Adam and Eve encountered in the garden. Same thing. When the enemy offered them that piece of fruit, they saw the fruit was good for food. Think about turning stones into bread. Make something happen, something to eat. A delight to the eyes. Does that sound familiar? Looks good. And then finally, it'll make you wise. It'll give you something. You'll possess something that God has been withholding from you. It was really the, the way that he was tempting them. See, these false narratives can end up being the temptations of our lives. And it's why it can be so difficult to know love and to share love. And each of these three things that we just looked at are based on an insecurity. There's a sense of insecurity in each of these. I've got to make things happen. I don't know if they will, so I've got to make it happen. I've, I've got to look good. I've got to make sure I have enough of whatever it is. We've learned over the course of our lives to define ourselves in these ways, believing that they will give us then a sense of security or power. And this trips us up again and again because when we are interacting with ourselves and the world through the lens of these three things, it affects our life with God and our ability to live as loved people. There's a great book that has come out in the last couple of years by 
a therapist named Crispin Mayfield. It's called Attached to God. And he talks about this dynamic of experiencing connection, attachment, bonding with God. I think sometimes in the church, we know all the right things that God loves me, but we maybe don't experience the sense of his presence or that sense of connection. And, and, and Mayfield in his book suggests that, uh, these three elements of the false self, these false narratives lead to then three really unhealthy or insecure spiritualities. And, and, and let's look at what those are. The first one is uh, when we're looking at that false identity of we are what we do, and we can look at the next slide. What it does is it leads to an anxious spirituality. As we've grown up or uh, as we've grown up, we've perhaps come to believe that we have to do the right things, have the right answers, so we get anxious. And as it comes to our relationship with God, maybe there's a bit of anxiety, always wanting to make sure we do it right. We say the right things, we believe the right things, we do the right things. And we can import that false narrative that false sense of identity that into our relationship with God. And then the second one, defining ourselves by what we have, then our, 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 by what others think of us, that can lead to a shame-based spirituality. Perhaps because of a low view of ourselves, we feel like God's not pleased with us. And we need to clean up, we need to show up, we need to perform, put on a good face, look good, and then finally, as we define ourselves by, by what we have, it can lead to a shutdown spirituality. You know, in this scenario, we learned at some point that to get what we need, we need to not feel or, or express messy emotions. For some of us, we grew up in families where it wasn't okay to cry. We were even told things like, you know, big boys don't cry or big girls don't cry. There wasn't space. And so we learned how to shut things down and hold things close. And we can bring that into our relationship with God. And yet the example we see in scripture is God saying, come to me with all of who you are. When he says, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, all of that, what he's saying is come to me with all of who you are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, however you might define it. Come to me, connect with me based on all of who you are, not holding anything back. And yet for many of us, we feel like we have to hold things back in one way or another. And so here's the problem. When our lives are grounded in the false self, we experience insecurity in relationships, both with God and with, with others. And so if we're defining ourselves by what we do, what others think of us, what we have, it will affect things. It will trip us up as we're seeking to love. You know, whether we've realized it or not, 
we're asking the question, am I connected? Am I loved? We start asking it from the time we're a young child, like in the video we saw. Before there's even intelligible words, the question that's being asked by our heart is, am I connected? Am I attaching? Is that person there looking at me? We're asking that in our human relationships. And then we also start to ask it in our relationship with God as well. Those two things affect each other. Now here's the good news. Even though these things will be at play in each of our lives, the good news is that we have overcome the world or the false self. We can skip the next couple of slides that are a quote and go to that next one. We have overcome the world or the false self but we participate in the journey of experiencing this overcoming of those things, of the world, as we rest in the reality of who God is. And three things specifically. We can go ahead a a few slides past that quote, if we can, Kelly. The realities are, are these, that that we have nothing to produce. We don't have to make it happen. We don't have to keep it together. In other words, we don't have to be anxious. We have nothing to prove. We don't have to live in shame. We have nothing to prove to God. And actually to others. You don't. And then finally, there's nothing to protect. For many of us, we've adopted a bit of a shutdown sort of approach in order to protect. And with God, there's nothing to protect. God doesn't say big boys or big girls don't cry. God doesn't say that to us. We have a secure attachment to God. We have a secure attachment. God is present smiling at us and interacting with us at all times. I want you to pause here for just a moment and think about this. God is always loving us. In Christ, we're told that we are his beloved in whom he is well pleased. He is never not with us, loving us. And again, often we we see God through the lens of the world, the false self. And we think things like God needs me to, or God demands that I, or God may not like it if. But here's the reality that comes out of the fact that God is always with us, smiling at us, loving us, nothing to prove, nothing to protect, nothing to produce. The reality then is, is this. He does not need us, but he desires us. I think we have to be careful with our language. Sometimes we say, well, God needs this. God does not need us, but he desires to to experience connection with us. And then secondly, he doesn't demand from us, but he does invite us to his love. And then finally, he does not stop, but he keeps on loving us. And so love for God and neighbor is rooted in, in our attachment or our bonding to God. 
Let me just close with with this. You know, being secure in this love and living as a loved person, living from a place of secure attachment to God, is discerned not through others or even ourselves. And that's what's said in verses 6 through 13. We won't read those verses, but that's what he gets at there. But it's through looking at Jesus and listening to the Spirit. We will, we will look at verse 13, the last verse in this section. He says, I write these things to you. Or do we have it on the screen? I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And he's talking about eternal life there. He's not talking about when we die and go to heaven someday. That's an extension of it. But he's talking about the quality of life that we have right now in connection with God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because we are born of God. We are in him. And so here's what I want to challenge you with this week. Almost all of our struggles relationally with others or even angst that we experience personally, it goes back to this world system that Jesus overcame or conquered. And so this week, I I want to encourage you to practice the pause. And as you become aware that you're defining yourself by, by what you do or what others think of you or by what you have, okay? Pretty simple, pretty easy to remember and understand, okay? As you find yourself identifying with one of those things, just pause. Just stop. And when you're experiencing that, stop and turn the gaze of your heart to God's love. Very simple. You could do that just kind of throughout your day or perhaps take five minutes of quiet prayerfully each day and just meditate on God's love. And notice how elements of the false self of the world want to creep in. And as they do, just let them go and return to looking, meditating, beholding God's love. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, as John says in in chapter 3, behold what a great love you have for us. And Lord, as we seek to love you and love others, by your Spirit, would you give us discernment and insight into the ways we're identifying with those false narratives that we might return our gaze to you and deepen in our attachment and our connection to you and to your heart. And I pray all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.